you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Vanessa O'Brien is a British and American mountaineer, explorer and author with a hugely impressive set of achievements. She holds five Guinness World Records as the first woman to reach Earth's highest and deepest points, Mount Everest and Challenger Deep, the fastest woman to climb the seven summits, achieving in 295 days, the first person to reach the furthest and nearest to Earth's core, and the first, the first woman to complete the four poles challenge, Mount Everest, Challenger Deep, and skiing the last degree to both the North and South Poles and the oldest woman to have summited K2, the second tallest peak, at 52 years old. Vanessa has written a book called To the Greatest Heights, which tells her own journey to these and many other achievements. She is a brand ambassador for a number of organisations, as well as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and an honorary advisory board member of the Scientific Exploration Society, who awarded her Explorer of the Year in 2018. Vanessa is also an advocate for women's causes, carrying the UN women's flag to the summit of K2. She lives in New York with her British husband. Vanessa, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you so much, Becca. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could start by sharing a bit about your background and how you got into mountaineering. So in the book, To the Greatest Heights, it tells the story of of basically how I lost my corporate job and decided to climb Mount Everest after Great Recession around 2010. I take the readers through several hair-raising obstacles, uh, learning to climb and climbing itself, which include all the frozen body parts that litter the climbing trails and the setbacks in which I end up um, eating enormous bits of humble pie. I strive for authenticity in the book, and there's a lot of character development. So Uh, any of the readers would see that any successes that I achieve are not really easy, but one after a fair amount of effort and determination. I also use a lot of humor from describing my lead guide, who I describe as looking like David Beckham, if David Beckham were going through a (laughs) flannel phase, to avalanches such as the one on Everest in the icefall in which I describe as swift and unstoppable, like an armada of frozen ocean liners. I also try to weave in philosophy and wisdom throughout the journey, really, to pass on to the reader so any reader who is in need of such things can also be enlightened. So the feedback that I've mostly received has been pretty good. The ones that appreciated the most really have nothing to do with climbing. It's really the courage and hope throughout the book that they find inspiring, and they've been able to see parallels to situations in their own lives. Many of the themes have had to do with being stuck in life, and there's been no better time to have been stuck than during COVID-19, when people felt trapped and wanted a way out. So my job as an author has been to show readers that they really have more personal power and taking any step forwards have less initial risk than they think, because they can always go backwards. But without moving forward, no one ever really knows their true potential. I mean, that's incredibly profound. And and you've used some of the most extreme sets of circumstances to demonstrate that. So you lost your job in the financial services sector, and then you were inspired to climb your first mountain. What was it that was going through your mind when you decided to do that? Because I can imagine that lots of people will empathize with losing jobs, but 
not so much perhaps then jumping to, to climb a mountain. Can you just talk us a little bit more through why you wanted to do that? You know, it's it's really being a type A person and that uh, the type A types of people are what the mountain attracts. It's primarily because we can't really sit at home and do nothing. Mm. What I didn't know is what exactly I would do, but what I found is that uh, I was searching for something. And it was the first time I really was out of work. And I kept making lists. And my lists included things like having a goal and, um, you know, having it something I could sink my teeth into maybe something that would take two to three years. And as I made these lists, I tried to put activities against these lists. But the activities would fail in one way or another, like, say, I want to cure malaria, which is, you know, altruistic, but bigger than me, and it would fail on a time dimension. Or if I loved uh, beauty products, I wanted to create one, um, I would know nothing about the packaging or how to preserve the product. So it would fail in a time element. And then when somebody mentioned Everest, it just, you know, kind of ricocheted. And then the proverbial penny dropped and it was like, wow, Everest, 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 where is it? How high is it? And my head was like spinning. And then I just took it from there. The only the only real difference is I, I never forgot about it. And I just ended up going mad researching it. It did hit every criteria. And that's really where the journey took off was that suggestion. Where do you think your sense of adventure comes from? Is that something that you've been born with? How have you cultivated it? For better or for worse, I think I was born in December, which is lucky or unlucky with that, you know, Archer and that sign of Sagittarius where, you know, that proverbial bow is shot and, you know, I go off and chase something. There's parts of that which are true. There's a sense of curiosity in which, you know, I, I've always been attracted to, you know, outdoors and adventure and, and you know, foreign places. I, the unknown has always been exciting, but also I was born to young parents and young parents encouraged, you know, activities, you know, fun things. My father was an outdoorsman and was always active in, in hunting and fishing and, you know, would sort of scoop us up and take us out. And I compared to the Griswold one day, but, you know, we were always thrown in the back of the car and just taken somewhere. So I, I think we were just encouraged to explore. We were talking earlier about my husband who had a similar set of influences from his parents. He was taken to Everest Base Camp when he was eight years old. And I know that was a, a, a seminal moment for him in terms of his love of mountains and mountaineering, although he's sadly not managed to uh, to take it as, as far as you have. Um, you have such an impressive set of achievements and you've broken so many world records. Uh, are there any standout achievements? I wonder if one is more profound than the other or are they all actually part of a, a, a broader story that you're telling? Uh, well, they all represent something different. You know, the, the first woman to reach Earth's highest and lowest is, is important to me because it represents, you know, two different mediums, you know, the, the, the mountains and the ocean. You know, when I think about the extreme, I think about what our generation could contribute that the previous generations maybe couldn't. You know, the previous generations, and, and I've gotten to know a lot of, um, you know, the, the famous climbers over the years, you know, they, they were really set out to go and specifically conquer a mountain and find a new route because it was unknown how to get up. But for my generation that came along, 
I really wanted to look at it differently and say, okay, so we know how to get up on the mountain. What can we do differently? So what, what we really could contribute was what our age was struggling with, which was climate change. So we were effectively the boots on the ground. And what I would later say, maybe the stunt men and women who could take the risk that the scientists didn't have to, to bring the samples back and therefore find out about contamination, bring back the samples to see if the glaciers were receding or if we're in the ocean, the water samples to prove whether there was ocean acidification or the warming of the oceans so single cell organisms could no longer effectively grow their shells. So all of these things were important, but since we were there, it was negligence in my mind not to capture those things. Wow. So you have literally seen climate change firsthand and the effects of climate change. On the same mountain every year. Mm. That's how profound it is. And in fact, I would, I would even say to the extent that if you decided that you cared, it's almost too late because something like the Himalayas, a third of those glaciers are already gone. And all you could really do is care about that second third. You can never bring back the first third. It's, um, as you say, it's, it's irreversible. And uh, uh, we are doing a lot, as you know, as the UK government to, you know, show real leadership on the world stage, but it takes everybody to yeah, Absolutely, and... absolutely. That's so true. And I, and I have to commend the UK for putting climate change on the agenda, hosting the climate uh, conference and and really trying to take a leadership position to you know try to put together you know things that the countries can sign up for and agree to because without global participation it's just words for those of us who haven't been as adventurous as you just give us a bit of a sense of what goes into planning an expedition of the kind that you undertake because it's quite hard to get your head around the various different elements. And I would love to just have a bit of a, an insight into what you have to think through and what you have to do. So no expedition is easy. Uh, and certainly none of them happen alone. It, it is definitely a, a team. And a part of that is because these things happen in really remote locations. So even, even a tall mountain of um, 8,000 meters, they're, they're very, very far away. So, you know, they're so remote. You, you go to the, a capital city in a, in a remote place and then fly to the farthest city and then walk another 100 kilometers to get to the base of the mountain. And then you're seven kilometers walking vertical. So it's, it's you know, sometimes just, thinking that through, you know, that if you have a team of 12 in whatever composition to include other climbers, to include, you know, cooks, uh, staff, you know, managing, you're going to have a baggage of some sort of support mechanism for six to eight weeks. That's going to include 250 porters for what could be, you know, five tons of equipment just to get you there and back. So it does take a lot of planning. Uh, porters can only certain carry certain amount of weight. They drop you off, they leave, they come get you at the end. None of these things have ever been inexpensive from the beginning of time. They've just been funded differently over time. Mm -hmm. So early on, these things were funded through 
um, alpine clubs and geographic societies and even some of the newspapers who sometimes people could sell advanced rights to books and things like that. Nowadays, it's easier for men to get sponsorship. You know, if, if it's a watch or a car, some technology companies, you know, it's very, very easy for them to, to get sponsorship, but, but it's harder for women for sure. And there's less women. Usually they'll say, well, what if she dies? No, oftentimes they'll never ask a man that. That is the dichotomy of sometimes what, what women face. They're seen still as sort of the weaker sex in the, in a sport like this, although that's absolutely not true where endurance is concerned. Mm-hmm. There are some differences, but planning the expeditions and then something like an ocean. When I went to the bottom of the ocean, that was 2020. So that was right at the start of COVID. So that ended up being very, very challenging because even though the bottom of the ocean is located at the federal states of Micronesia and not Guam, it happened to be when uh, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which was a ship, and you might remember Crozier as one of those commanders of the ship catching COVID, that ship had three, mm-hmm. turned to 100, they came to Guam, Guam ended up as a military hospital. So trying to land on Guam almost became impossible. So the only thing that you can absolutely guarantee on an expedition is that something will go wrong. <laughs> So you have to be extremely flexible, adaptable, quick to problem solve around almost anything that could pop up. And sometimes clever. Like in that case with Guam, the president, then President Trump, had a president's proclamation that said only essential services. But therein was an opportunity. And the opportunity was that no one knew exactly what that meant. Where there is uncertainty, there is also opportunity. I was actually going to ask you what you think are the the most helpful characteristics for being a successful mountaineer. I mean, you've already just mentioned some around problem solving and perseverance, but you also talk about having quite large teams with you. So leadership must be such a hugely important dimension to it all. Yeah, leadership is is critical. And I think in any expedition, it's important to have a leader. Usually that leader is the one who signs the the permit in, in most cases. It's important because there will be situations and, and occasionally life-threatening situations in which calls have to be made and, and you have to know who that person is. You may not always agree, but there has to be, there has to be one person where, quote, the buck stops here. And that person has to be able to stand up and take responsibility mm. for if it goes right, if it goes wrong, if whatever, it has to be that person. Mm. I think that's very, very important in any of these expeditions. And, and generally, we always know who that is. It, it would be the same, I think, in any organization. Whoever designates and stands up, we know who the leader is. And, and, and in your world, you know, you are genuinely potentially having to make life or death decisions. So You'll, you'll see uh, in the book, there's some interesting comparison and contrast. I, I think there's three situations where women really stand out as phenomenal leaders and I compare and, and t- I take those opportunities to compare and contrast them to male differences in leadership around communication and collaboration and, and, and teamwork doesn't take away from their ability and decision making, but how they come to decision making is a little bit different. Um, oftentimes through the collaboration process, they will still make the decision, but how they involve others may be different. But uh, the decision making is, is very, very important and a big part of leadership. Mm. And actually, I was going to move on to 
talk about you as a woman in this profession because one of the um the, the real standout headlines is that you were the first woman to achieve so many of these summits you spent most of your career in finance you mentioned before and now in in this profession and both of those are pretty male dominated so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your own personal experience as a female mountaineer and and some of the challenges that you faced in that context yeah sure I'd say there's definitely parallels both mountaineering and finance, certainly back earlier, were male-dominated. I'm sure it's changed, but you know, you'll know you still see a slight uh, preference for, for male domination in those areas. However, going from one to the other meant that I wouldn't see a change. But climbing was different, and especially back in the day, because again, if I take, you know, let's take uh, Sir Chris Bonington, who I adore, you know, he climbed with his mates, which is fantastic. But I definitely did not climb with my mates. My my mates were were girlfriends who wouldn't be caught climbing outdoors, much less peeing outdoors. That would be um, <laughs> a straight red card, right? So no chance. So I was leading two lives in a sense. I was mountain me and urban me. And at one point in the book, you know, I, I think I say I'm equally happy in a tent or a five star hotel. And you can note the extremes, but they are extremes. I'm definitely not happy in the middle. No three-star hotels. <laughs> but anyway, back to being a woman, the, the teams were always focused on objectives. So really, if there's five boxes and five people, everybody grabs a box. We're focused on the objective. I'm not seen as a girl, as a part of a team. I'm just seen as a team member. You might as well assign letters like A, B, C, D, E. It's not that I'm taking uh, the sex away from somebody. It's just that they're, it's, it's not important. We're, we're equal. And the mountain, by the way, Reinhold Mester had a great quote, mountains aren't fair or unfair. They're just dangerous. Mountains don't discriminate. They don't care who's climbing them. It's an endurance sport. You don't have a benefit. It's not like you benefit because you have more upper body strength, your, your legs and your feet and your mind and your focus and, you know, your ability to to stay there. The stereotypes are really out the window for all practical purposes. I would say, you know, we're equal. You made a point earlier about male sponsorship. Do you think that the the wider environment is is more predisposed to supporting men aside from the actual expedition itself? I do see men get more sponsored. If I break that down, there's a couple of reasons probably for that. One goes against men and women. And that is that mountaineering is not seen as a sport like football or rugby or tennis. You're not going to see an agent go after us. Mm -hmm. And part of that is probably goes back to having been an Olympic game and then taken out of the Olympics. We had three Olympic gold medals in mountaineering in the early days, and it was taken away. It is, it is not a sport that you want to watch in real time. So it's not something you're going to televise. Where the money is, there's, there's actually probably more dollars chasing females in terms of products when you break down like cosmetics and skincare and things like that. So, so actually, it's kind of interesting. The only thing I could think of is, is you know, that, it, that it comes down to risk and companies potentially not wanting to have a publicity scandal where it doesn't matter what it's cost. I don't want to be associated with a body on a mountain. But there are ways to mitigate that. And depending on the risk appetite, what you would do is say, okay, no social media until you're at the summit, number one, no social media until you're down from the summit, number two, or no social media until you're back completely, 
Mm. And there's no country risk. But what I think the brands forget is there will never again be an opportunity to showcase the brand values of the hard work, the discipline, the focus, everything that goes into getting to the top. And then of course, the brand of being at the top, being number one, you know, flying that flag, those opportunities, they're gone. You can't simulate that. You can't just Photoshop that in, right? So there's only one time to be there and to actually be a part of that success. So they're missed opportunities and, and maybe in the future, new marketing execs come in and they think a little broader, you know, they'll open this up and they'll start to mitigate the risks and say, hey, wait a minute, mm. I am going to, to engage this because there's also ways to engage individuals during this. We're going we're gonna to do something when they reach camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, maybe pay off a credit card bill, maybe do something, you know, where they engage the consumers who get really excited. And you've written a book called To the Greatest Heights, Facing Danger, Finding Humility and Climbing a Mountain of Truth. And you describe it as a story about resilience, the love child born to obstacles and avalanches and about how the adventure of life evolves into exploration. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the book? You've talked about some of the, the elements in it, but, but also some of the acute challenges that you talk about, including trauma, which is very difficult subject to have to write about, um, albeit your own autobiography, effectively. Can you tell us a bit more about the book? So when I first wrote the book, I wrote it chronologically, which meant that the book was sold to Simon and Schuster, then comes the real writing. And the real writing was, okay, what would make a good story? I didn't really like the chronological way that it was written. And I hired somebody who was called a plot whisperer. She was the one who really helped me look through all the different key aspects of the chapter. In fact, I remember being in a war room with her and putting all of these post-its up around the wall. And then all of a sudden I saw her take parts of these stories and start moving them around. I was like, oh, what are you doing? And she was like, no, 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 there's frostbite here. Your mom doesn't have a leg. This guy doesn't have any toes. And, you know, she's putting all these things together. I started making a list and I called them reveals. And she and I start, started talking about sort of these things that happen in my life. I called them reveals. Reveals were things that were personal, extremely personal, actually, that no one, not even my best friends knew about me. They were probably things that didn't happen to most people, but because they happened to me, I had thought of them as normal. When I sat down with her, we went through the reveals and thought about whether we should include them. If I revealed something, could it help somebody else who might've struggled with something similar and been hiding it or been embarrassed about it or something like that. By disclosing something, and I think this is true for anybody who discloses something that's personal, it potentially helps somebody else say, hey, wait a minute, that happened to me. I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm going to own it. So it's a way to try to normalize something and make people feel like they're not alone. What am I talking about? We're talking about things like abandonment. We're talking about alcoholism. We're talking about depression, body shaming, um, female sterilization, violence, trauma. Uh, what happens when you have to get back on your feet? Uh, gender roles, sanitary conditions, and even Islamophobia. So there's like just really heavy subjects. They're brought up because, of course, climbing. What are you doing when you're climbing? You got eight hours. You're in your head. What um, response have you 
hot so far? Actually, it's it's probably the best part um, is that people have been able to relate to a lot of them for all different reasons. And, and some ways in which I didn't expect, you know, a lot of people wrote in about losing jobs because, you know, COVID, I think a lot of people struggled. Um, they struggled with isolation. So you can have conversations and you can, you can, you know, show people patterns. You might have initial failure and then you have success. Success in its own right is quite boring. And what you want to see is you want to see the human struggle. Human beings are complex. You're not just who you are based on where you are today. You're who you are based on you know, the invisible backpack you carry and everything that you've accumulated throughout life. In most cases, that backpack is filled with really positive things that help you pivot and take, you know, steps forward and allow you to go backwards. But occasionally stuff gets in that backpack that you need to empty and leave on the side too. It's a great analogy, having a backpack, almost putting your tools in as your sets of experience and thinking about how failure actually drives success and really understanding what you know, what's happened and how you can learn from it. And I love that, that linear aspect to it that you, you paint the picture of. It's really, really profound. In failure, it's, it's almost like I wish everybody could think of failure a little differently. Failure is, is such an important part of future success. Everybody needs to, to go through it to understand what they need to do differently. You know, failure is, is associated with lack of intention. You can succeed if you keep mm. going. And you've tied a lot of your adventures to important causes, including championing women's rights, as I mentioned in, the, in your introduction. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about those causes and why they matter to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably the causes I'm most passionate about uh, would be women because, you know, we still have glass ceilings and how much we earn to, to men. And of course, those gaps and even our rights are, are different around the world, even to education and health. You know, it's nice to have a level playing field around the world. If, if we could ever achieve that, that would be universally you know, the best. And there are some cultural aspects that come into play. And, and education is is critical. You know, I always struggle with education versus health. Well, we can't really have education without health. So, you know, both of those go hand in hand for women. Climate change, you know, we, we can't really ignore this. I, I, I could not do what I'm doing and, and close my eyes and pretend that that's not, that that doesn't exist. Those are probably the top two things that, that I tend to get involved in. When I'm talking to schools, there are subsidiary things that come out of that. There are organizations and each of those organizations, sometimes, you know, they come in different waves of agendas and things that they want to do that become important at the moment. Finally, what, what's next for you on the expedition front? The next two really is, is probably book to film and finding an, an actress who could really go through the character transformation and bring it to film in a strong and powerful way. Benjamin Hardy had used my character as an example in Personalities Aren't Permanent and showing sort of the ego being cracked open through the transformation of climbing. So I think it would open up a new audience to a story. The second, of course, is space. I think an, another element in which uh, one could view the earth and view the way the earth is fragile. Really two contenders for that. It's going to be Virgin Galactic and uh, Blue Origin. They both have very different propositions. I don't know how I'll get there. So anyone listening to this podcast who has relationships with those two organizations, please let me know. 
But I, I did go through my first zero-G training last weekend at Kennedy Space Center, and it really was phenomenal. A 727-200 repurposed it and took us through Martian gravity and lunar gravity and zero gravity. And what I found was really that it's zero gravity is harder than I imagined in terms of control. It's, it's, uh, it's a great experience, but what I understand that most people are struck by is really seeing the Earth as just a planet. And getting that perspective in which you are able to really appreciate, you know, that, that we are much more fragile than, than we ever really think we are. And you probably will never have that perspective unless you really are able to look down at it and see it in that way. So, so yes, that is, um, I am training to be a, um, a, a, an astronaut, uh, in a commercial sense, and also to try to give back to science. I have some ideas on that, even though they're short trips, something that could um, could be interesting for, for scientists there. Wow. What a, uh, what a point to land on, Vanessa. It's, you're an inspiration, and uh, I wish you all the success for becoming an astronaut. That is absolutely incredible and would be an amazing addition to your already impressive achievements thank you so much for coming on brits and the big apple and and sharing your uh, incredible story with us thank you so much it's a pleasure you're listening to brits in the big apple brought to you by the british consulate in new york if you'd like to hear more about the work of the british consulate please follow us on twitter or instagram at uk in new york thank you for listening